0: Smell a little something funny. Ah, you glad to have your old seats back? Nice. Ah, good. Guys, let's take our Bibles and turn to First Peter chapter five. And Peter's been talking about how we can experience the grace of God uh, in the midst of great opposition. He's been talking to us about how we stand firm, fight the right battle. Choose the right weapons and so on. And we have lots of battles to fight. And when we come to chapter five, we look at the beginning here and he gives a word of advice to the elders. And uh, this is extremely important because as we fight the battle, we realize that we're not just fighting it for ourselves, but for our children, for our brothers and sisters in the church, for our community, for the world. And so when we're seeking to understand and appropriate the grace of God in our own lives, we realize that it involves immediately trying to have a a happy effect upon other people. It's part of our obligation. So as we stand firm in the faith, we need to learn how to lead other men, to check our heart, to be sure that we are committed to that task and that we are rightly motivated for it. And we'll see some great advice here in this text. You know, 200 years ago, In our country, uh, we had six world-class leaders. You can take uh, George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Madison, uh, uh, John Adams, uh, and Benjamin Franklin. And you can compare those to any of the great world-class leaders in the past 200 years, and they all stack up very nicely. And uh, you know when we come to the presidential election in 2008, you know someone asked me a few months ago, uh, "Who do you think is going to be running?" And I I, I missed it. You know I, I didn't guess Obama and and uh, McCain. Uh, so what do I know about politics? But uh, but then when someone asked me, do, "Do you have a favorite?" And I, I just simply respond, "You know they all have a limp." Uh, and maybe it's you know the the more we know. Our leaders, and we seem to know a whole lot more about these leaders than we maybe would have 200 years ago. They all seem to have a limp. We all have a limp. Uh, but sometimes we can be discouraged when we compare the situation of our country 200 years ago with today. I mean, and 200 years ago, you know how many people we had in this country? Three million. About half the size of the state of Tennessee. And we had those kind of leaders. And today we have 300 million. And, uh, you know, we're all asking ourselves, where are the Franklins and the Adamses and the Washingtons? And the reason we ask is because we know how important leadership is. And I I suggest to you there probably are some Washingtons and Adamses around us. We probably don't recognize them. But one thing we feel for sure is a shortage of leadership. And uh, leadership is very challenging. Uh, And whenever you put yourself forward as a leader... You're going to get into trouble. Your weaknesses are going to be exposed. Everybody's going to say about you, ah, he's got a limp. That's what they'll say about you. Because if you're a leader, you get out front. People will see your weaknesses as well as your strengths. And we don't like being attacked. And, uh, you know, imagine what it would be like to be in office and wake up every morning and something in there in the paper is about you. And clever reporting is always to find something negative about you, the leader. And rather than just stealing yourself or hardening yourself against it, you want to be able to take take those blows in the right way. And you all know from your own leadership, you're taking those hits. And what, what Peter's going to show us is that this is very important. And Peter took hits, too. He ended up crucified upside down. That was the way it all turned out for him, because he was willing to lead. And there's a great cost to leadership, but we're going to see in First Peter 5, there's a great calling for leadership. It's absolutely necessary to where we're going. Let's look at it. Verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Let's look first of all at verse one and notice that standing firm requires godly leadership. Standing firm requires godly leadership. We're talking about in this whole study this year of standing firm and how to stand firm. And what Peter is showing us is that's not going to happen without godly leadership. And I want to suggest to you that you are it. Uh, One time a friend of mine, who I think is a mature Christian man, said to me, you know, he said, I think everybody... Who follows Christ eventually must be a leader. Because Christ is a leader. And if you're following him, you will become like him. And you will lead. I thought that was a very interesting statement. Anyone who follows Christ is going to be a leader. Now, I suggest everybody's a leader whether they know it or not. They're either a good one or a bad one. That is, you're influencing people. But what my friend meant was that you would intentionally, self-consciously be a leader and a leader for good. And uh, I want to suggest this morning that as we look at this text where Peter is obviously talking about elders and shepherds in the church, that there is a sense in which the church is saying to the world, we think everybody should behave like an elder, like a shepherd. And the reason is that the Savior and head of our church is a shepherd. And everybody should be like him. He is the picture of the ideal man. And he called himself a shepherd. Furthermore, I think it would be right to say that the church ought to be saying to the world, let us set an example of how people ought to lead in their businesses, their medical practices, their schools. Let us establish the model for leadership in business and in the community. Rather than what the church has been doing for the past 50 years, is to learn whatever they can from business and try to, and marketing and try to practice it in the church. It's supposed to be the other way around. Why? Because the head of the church with whom we are organically related, like a, a body to a head, like a branch to a vine, is the ultimate, the quintessential leader. And he calls that leadership shepherding. And he is the one who shows us how not to come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for others. He's the one who shows us the model for how to transform the world and turn it right side up. So it seems to me that we ought to be studying the Bible and studying Christ for how to be a CEO, how to be a COO, CAO, CFO, how to be an entry-level worker who has some influence, how to be a salesman, how to be a doctor, how to be everything. So I'd like to challenge us, first of all, to realize that this text is for all of us and that the model of church leadership really ought to be the model for the world. It's a very, very important topic because if you look historically, any time something important has happened, God in his providence has always raised up a leader or leaders. Look at the civil rights movement in this country. Was it not a leader who had the microphone and who could communicate, who was willing to lay down his life? who was leading us through the civil rights movement of especially the 50s and the 60s. Look at the transformation of India back in the 40s, 30s. Was it not Gandhi who had a message that he incarnated and he laid down his life for it? And it transformed that entire subcontinent. Uh, And Gandhi used to say, you must become the change... That you want to see in other people. So Gandhi himself became what he wanted the Indian to become. And then he lived it out. Certainly when you look in the Bible, if you're going to move 2 million people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Canaan, that's a long distance through a very hot and barren wilderness. That is a change of culture from being a slave to being a free person. It's a change of government. It's a change of responsibilities. It's a change of politics. It's a change of religion. All these changes. How are you going to take two million people in a little over 40 years, take them from one place to an entirely different place and set of circumstances? You better raise up leaders. And in that case, of course, God himself did it personally when he raised up Moses. And then Moses was instructed to hand this over to Joshua and then to the judges after that and then the kings. God raised up leaders to take his people from where they are to, to where they're going. When God brought them back out of exile, out of Babylon, he raised up leaders, Zerubbabel. He raised up Nehemiah to encourage the people to build a wall and to establish the city of Jerusalem against all odds around them. It was very dangerous. It was life-threatening. It was very expensive. They were poor. And it, so the Lord raised up a leader. You find the same thing uh, with, when, the, when the Greeks took over the temple and committed the abomination in the temple. How was that corrected? Leaders. Judas Maccabeus and his family uh, you know, defeated the Greeks. When God wanted to do His greatest work, of leading the entire cosmos out of slavery into freedom in the promised land. This job was too big for Moses. So God sent his only son to lead. And we wouldn't be there without his leadership. So it's true in your city and my city. If Memphis is going to change, we're going to have men and women who are willing to take the burdens of leadership and to lay their life down it's because they are so enraptured with an idea and with a vision and with a purpose that it consumes them. And you find this with almost all of our great leaders, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King or, uh, or any other great leader. So often they, lay, they give their lives for it. Memphis, I believe, will probably not change without that kind of leadership. And so we need to pray for the Lord to make us the kind of leaders who are willing to die for His truth, for His love, and for Him to raise up that extraordinary leader who really sets the pace for us. I really believe down deep inside that this is probably going to cost at least one or two people their lives, and it will have to be the right one or two uh, who have obviously put their lives down for the city of Memphis. And who will be the cause that people can gather around to build the bridges that need to be built is leadership. And until men particularly understand that our purpose is to be sheep fattened for the slaughter. That's what Paul called us in Romans 8. He says, don't think that you're, that you're being abandoned by God when you get killed. No, this is your whole purpose. That's his argument in Romans 8. We're, we're sheep fattened for the slaughter until we understand that and revel in it, and take up that burden, then Memphis is not going to change, our country is not going to change, and the world is not going to change. But glory be to God, over over these past 200 years, He has been raising up men and women who have been serving and making a huge difference, and some of them are in this room. I just want to challenge all of us, not just to think about a particular office of elder that Peter refers to here, but to look more broadly at how grace itself is institutionalized and promoted only through the raising up of leaders who believe in grace and who lead graciously wherever they are. Well, let's look at what he's saying. Standing firm requires godly leadership. First of all, the church has leaders. If what I've said is true about any major movement requiring leadership, it's certainly true in the church. And I know we come from many, many different types of churches here. Some of us here have Episcopal forms of government. Whether you're in the Episcopal Church or the Methodist Church or the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, you have uh, an Episcopacy. Or you may be in a Baptist church uh, or congregational church where you have a democratic form of government. You have your business meetings every month and the democracy of the church votes. Or you may be in a Presbyterian church uh, that has elders. Uh, And, of course, you're the only one that's biblical, it seems to me. I'm just uh, Not really. Presbyterians would like to say that, but it's not true. Uh, the Baptists would say, no, the pastor is the elder, or the pastors are the elders. And, of course, in the Episcopal forms of government, the bishops and the priests are the elders. Uh, so they, uh, and I think there's room in the Scriptures for probably, in some sense, all forms of government. You could probably make an argument um, for Probably all the forms of government that we have. We, we each think ours is right. We'll talk about that some other time. But let's see what he has to say here. First of all, the church does have leaders. And Peter could have said, as an apostle, I appeal to you. But he appeals to them as a fellow elder. And he's speaking to the elders. And he is appealing to them. He is pleading with them. And you'll find in the scriptures in Acts 20, where Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders... Or in First Timothy three, where Paul tells Timothy to appoint elders in Ephesus or Titus to appoint elders in Crete or Acts six, where the instructions for deacons are to relieve the elders so that the leaders can do their most important work. And if you come from a Presbyterian church uh, and you're an elder, uh, remember, your most important work is given to you there in Acts chapter six. This is the reason you have deacons, so that you can devote yourself to the ministry of the word and prayer. And what I find, if I can just speak to Presbyterians for just a moment, and you'll have your analogies and all your forms of government, you apply it in your own mind best you can. But at Presbyterian churches, we have, you know, a, a session, which is the collection of elders that govern the church. Now, we have deacons who do the ministry of compassion and help with the logistics and the finances of the facility, and they lead in all those areas. And you also have pastors. What I find in Presbyterian churches is that uh, the elders typically do the work of the deacons. They try to make all the decisions about the money and facilities and the logistics, and they get themselves involved in administration, try to manage the church. And so the pastors end up doing the work that the elders are supposed to do, which is to visit the sick and to, to pray with the lonely and to engage in all the of spiritual problems of the church. And the deacons don't know, for heaven's sakes, what they're supposed to do at all uh, because somebody took their job. And I suggest, if you're in a Presbyterian church, that you ask yourself whether each group is really doing what they're supposed to be doing. And the deacons are supposed to help. And they're supposed to relieve those who have the ministry of the Word and prayer from devoting themselves from things that would distract them. And elders are easily distracted because they also understand finance and logistics and facilities and they have opinions and they feel competent in those areas and they don't always feel very competent in spiritual matters and so they'd like to feel competent and so they'll just go do what they feel competent doing and then the deacons who are also competent are not then helping them and i've said to our deacons you need to fuss at the elders When they start taking your job, because when they start taking your job, I'll guarantee you they're not doing their own job. And their job is to care spiritually for the people through the ministry of the word and prayer. And if you don't feel competent, then I say to you, then let's go to school and get competent. But let's perform the leadership that's needed in the church. And you'll see that the heart of all of our leadership is the ministry of the word and prayer. So what the deacons are doing is promoting the ministry of the word and prayer through exercising their own gifts. If you're in a Baptist church, in your case, the pastor is the elder. I find in so many Baptist churches that you guys think that your main job is to balance the power that the clergy have. That's your main job, is to oppose the pastor and be sure you create a balance of power. And I suggest to you that idea probably is coming from below, not from above. Of course, there are times when decisions have to be made and everybody will state their piece. And sometimes the clergy are wrong and they need to be corrected. But that's not your primary job. You know what your primary job is? To help your pastor devote himself without distraction to the ministry of the word and prayer. Those of you on the vestry in Episcopal churches, are you devoting yourself to taking away the distractions from those in your church that are to be devoted to the ministry of the Word and prayer? Are you liberating the leadership gifts that are meant to be used in your church? Are you trying to get out of the way all the logistical administrative items? Not to fuss or argue with people or to grab for the steering wheel. This is not a power play. It's a service play. How can I serve instead of how can I control? And I find that so often when church leaders get together, what they're really thinking about is who's in control here. And those are important questions. Those need to be settled. Everybody needs to be clear about that. And we need to be taught on it. But taught on it so that we can get past it. And then we can put people to work in important areas. The church has leaders. And that leadership is primarily a leadership of the, of prayer in the Word. It's the weapons that we've been discussing in First Peter. Secondly, Notice that the elders share with the apostles. Peter says, not as an apostle, but as a fellow elder. A witness, he says, uh, of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. So we are witnesses of Christ's sufferings because we have the apostolic ministry. We have been told by the Apostle Paul about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so we become witnesses by faith, we share with the apostle Peter. We share in the glory to be revealed. So Peter is condescending to us. He knows he's an apostle. He already said he's an apostle. But he says to us, I'm appealing to you as a fellow leader. I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings. I'm going to share in the glory to be revealed. So are you. You're a certain sort of witness, a secondhand witness of the sufferings and of the glory. And that those two things describe a lot of what's going on in 1 Peter. Let's talk about sufferings that lead to glory. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. All throughout 1 Peter. Peter says, look, I'm a witness of both these things. One now, one later. So are you. And so he's appealing to us as one who shares in the apostolic ministry. So as you lead in this world, my question to you is, are you consciously leading as one who is sharing with the apostle Peter? who is sharing with the Lord Jesus Christ the burdens for this world? Do you sense your connection, relational connection to the apostles? Do you have a sense that what you're doing in life is apostolic? We all have different ideas of apostolicity. Uh, I believe the one in the Bible is that we only have the twelve apostles. And the apostolic office is not passed down. That's, That's my view of it. But... As a you know, I speak as a Protestant. But as a Protestant, let me say this. We all share. I share in the apostolic office in the sense that I'm seeking to carry out the same ministry based on the same foundation. So are you if you're in Christ. Because the church is built on the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. That's our foundation. And Peter is reminding us of that in our leadership, that we're carrying out something that's apostolic. Secondly, godly leaders must shepherd God's people. Now let's look at the components of this. First of all, we must shepherd. He says be with, with all this ramp up in verse 1. You know, I'm appealing to you, I'm pleading with you, I'm one of you, you're sharing in the apostolic office. He builds this all up and then he says be shepherds. Now he's speaking to church leaders. He's speaking to elders. Now, in Presbyterian churches, uh, elders are both clergy and lay people. We believe in a shared office of elder. There's really one office of elder. And so those of you who are Presbyterians, if you, have, you may happen to be an elder here. But look at the language. He says, be shepherds, which is the word for pastor. Be pastors. So what I'd like to suggest to you is what Peter is saying is that Christ-like leadership is pastoral. What I believe we're being shown here is that your leadership in your business, in your educational institution, in your firm, is to be pastoral. If you want to lead like Jesus leads, you will lead pastorally. So... If you've ever had a pastor whose leadership you thought you could emulate or whose leadership you thought was particularly pastoral, imitate him. When my predecessor came back to speak on one of those occasions, maybe it was about five or six years ago, we had a wonderful time in this room with some of our older members who, of course, were here 15 and 20 years ago when he was a pastor. And when he was introduced... Uh, Dr. Justin Towner said of him, if there's one thing I would say about Dick DeWitt, he was a pastor. I thought what a great compliment to anybody, not just one who's a clergy, but to anybody to say, if there's one thing to say about you, what a pastor. What Peter is saying, I'm appealing to you as a fellow worldwide leader. I'm appealing to you for the sake of the entire world and the church. Be a pastor. That doesn't mean that you're paid for it. doesn't mean that you're ordained and set apart. You don't have to be to be a shepherd. You have to have the heart for it. And you have to develop the skills for it. So let's see what he's talking about. If we were to look in the Bible about what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a shepherd leader, whether in business or in the church, let me suggest four things that come from the Scriptures. Number one, it means you're going to gather people. And if you're in the ministry of Christ, you're always gathering for Him. You're influencing for Him. And so many of you, in the way you do your business, it's unbelievable. People are watching you, and they know there's something different about you. And when they see that, I want you to know there's a gathering impact of that leadership. They're drawn to the way you lead your life and the way you're conducting your business. It's not just that you're honest. It's that you really care about people. And that you're not wooden and condemning of other people and self-righteous. You have your standards, but you're also understanding and tolerant of other people. That has a gathering effect because people want to be around that. And you know what they're drawn to, whether they know it or not? They're drawn to Christ in you because that's who Christ is. Look at it. Here's one who could speak the truth with thundering power. And then he could look at a woman who's married five times and sit down at the well and talk with her when nobody else would possibly talk to her. Because he loved her. And people see that in you and they're drawn. So I would say a shepherd, first of all, is drawing people not to himself ultimately, but to the one who made him and redeemed him. And your whole life is built on that, is drawing people to Jesus Christ, whether verbally or non-verbally. And you'll find that in Ezekiel. You'll find it in Luke where we're told Jesus said, if a shepherd has 100 sheep and 99 of them are right in front of him, but one of them goes over the hillside, what is that shepherd going to do? He's going to go over and get the one. And those of you who have businesses, you have 100 people that report to you. 99 of them are doing great. One of them just had a divorce and is not functioning very well. And and everybody thinks you should fire her. But you have a special heart for it. You're going to try to help her. Maybe she's recoverable. And it's not financially feasible. It'd be easier to fire her. But you've decided you've got a shepherd's heart. You're going to try to recover where you can recover. I'm not saying you never fire anybody. Obviously, you don't do that. You'll be in real trouble. You better be able to fire people. But there's a heart to gather and to help. Secondly, you'll find that these this, these leaders feed people. They're always teaching. You know, if you, if you listen to Jack Welch or his organization when he was at General Electric, they'll tell you he was teaching all the time. He said, my main job as a CEO was to be a teacher. And he taught seminars of all of his Budding executives all the time. He would take them to their GE retreat center and he would teach all the time in Connecticut. And in your organization, you need to be a teacher all the time. And of course, what you're teaching is very important. And what you're teaching will feed people in how to be better people. And whether they know it or not, let me tell you what they're going to be hearing. They're going to be hearing through you something that reflects the teaching of the gospel. I'm not saying you're going to teach them the gospel. I'm saying it's going to reflect the values of the gospel. And because you're gathering people, they're being drawn to Jesus Christ through your life, and everything that you teach is a feeding. You're feeding people good, nourishing uh, things for their soul. Thirdly, uh, and of course in in feeding, you have that great text where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, "You you know all things you know I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. Feed them. And so in your church life, as you develop your leadership, before we leave this point, you need to learn to feed other people. Maybe you're not a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're not adequately gifted to be a Sunday school teacher. That's okay. God gives the gifts, and we, we don't know why he gives one, one gift and one another. I wondered why it is that some people are so good at administration, and I don't seem to be. Why is it that some people are so great at hospitality, and I, don't even know, I, don't, I hardly know how to begin. How is it these people are so prominently gifted in ways that I am I, not. It's because the Lord did it. And so some of you may say, well, I, I wish I were a more effective teacher, but I guess I'm not gifted. Well, what about this? What about when you bump in the hallway with someone who's got a problem? Do you have anything to say to them? Any food you can give them through words from your mouth, any words of encouragement. That's what a leader does. He feeds people. He nourishes them. And I want to say for those of you who are younger especially, The church of Jesus Christ, in my opinion, is starving for teachers. Leaders who will devote themselves to the study of the word and study of our culture and study of human needs and bring the two of them together in lessons expounding the scriptures. We desperately need teachers in the church of Jesus Christ. I'd like to encourage you to think about that, that leaders are communicators and feeders. Thirdly, we guard people. We guard our organizations. We guard the families that we love. We guard our own families. We guard our friends. We guard our churches. We guard our Sunday school classes. We guard our small groups. We guard everything with which we have influence. And a leader is a guarder and a protector. And sometimes people wonder why I get so exercised about certain things that may not seem too big to them. I'll tell you why. It's because in my opinion... I may be wrong, but in my opinion, that little thing is a threat to either the unity or the purity or the peace of the church. And it's my job to deal with that so that this church is unified, it is holy, and is at peace with one another. If I find someone who's a rabble rouser, someone who just gossips and backbites, I'm all over it like white on rice because I'm guarding the flock. And every one of you has a flock. And some of you are fathers. And you need to be sure the role of the leader is to guard the flock. Does that mean that you become a self-righteous, negative, corrective person? No. It means primarily you become a person of prayer who is calling upon God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You're praying for God to protect you and your household. You're praying for God to protect your business and all those who work with you, you have a guarding instinct. And if you want to know where that comes from, just all you have to do is look at Acts 20 and you'll find the Apostle Paul speaking of how savage wolves are going to come in among the flock. I'm telling you, every one of you in your spiritual work, if you're exercising leadership somewhere, there is a threat. The devil has taken notice of what you're doing. He would like to unwind it. Don't be surprised when savage wolves come in. And where do do these savage wolves come from? In Acts chapter 20. From the church. It's people who rise up from within the church that the devil uses as fifth columns. And the leader is aware of this. And he doesn't get angry so, so that he destroys people. He gets angry at the devil so that he spares people. He cares for people. He guards them. And in the church, of course... This is where warnings come from. This is why we warn each other. This is the reason we admonish each other. This is actually the reason people are excommunicated. Because the church is being guarded. Because you have in, in all church discipline, the purpose, of course, is to restore the sinner. It's also to purify the church and to glorify the name of God and to protect his reputation. So you have a communal aspect to everything that's going on. And we leaders are guarders. And uh, I think men in particular are built this way. And I think as you live out your manhood and what it means to take the strength that God has given us as men, we we do not only gather and feed, but we guard. Fourthly, in the the Scriptures I notice that shepherds lead, and that is they get out ahead, and they call people to follow them. If you're driving cattle, you're behind them, beating them. But if you, you can't drive sheep. They, they're undrivable. You have to get out ahead of them and sing. And you, each of them has a name. If you're a shepherd, you have a name for every one of those l- dumb little white animals. And you call them by name, and you sing to them, and they recognize your voice, and they'll follow you. I don't know. It's the way it works with sheep. They're not as smart as cattle. They're dumb animals. But they will respond to a voice they recognize That they're not afraid of. And that's your voice. That's the way you lead people. You get out ahead of them. You don't drive them. Don't treat them like cattle. Treat them like lambs. That's what God calls them. All human beings are to be lambs of His. So let's treat them like they're to become. If they find Him. They're His lambs. His potential lambs anyway. And we lead them. So we get out in front. As Gandhi said, you must become the change you want to see in other people. Not... Four steps ahead of them, not a hundred steps ahead of them, one step ahead of them. And you must know them by name and be able to call them along. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. He goes through the path of righteousness first. And then he says, Come, follow me. He said it to his disciples over and over again. Come, follow me. What did the Apostle Paul say seven times in his epistles? Imitate me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me, follow me. Do as I say. Do as I do. Seven times. It's a principle that leaders must live out the very vision they have for what the world ought to become and then to tell the world to come follow them. So if you're not living a life that you want the world to follow, you you are disqualifying yourself from effective leadership. So, take your own advice. Live the life that you believe in principle one ought to live. And then you can say to the rest of this world, I'd be glad to show you. And that's what leaders do they lead, they get out in front. Leading people is simply taking them from where they are to where you believe they ought to be. And the leader is in the middle. Isn't that what Moses did? Where they were was in Egypt. And he started to talk to them about a different place. And he got between them and that different place. And he said, come follow me. We're going to go through the wilderness. That's what you do. But you have to know the different place. And you have to know why they're resisting coming out of the old place. You have to know them. Well, we'll get to that. Let's look, for example, at the essential components of effective leadership. And let me give you four. These are the four that I use when I, when I talk to our own staff about how to lead as, an, as one of the aspects of being a shepherd. First of all, you have to set the example. We've discussed this. And I think I've said to you before, I know some clergy who will complain about living in a fishbowl. And I've always said to them, how do you leave without a fishbowl? The fishbowl is your weapon. The fishbowl is not a threat to your happiness. The fishbowl is one of the most powerful weapons you have. So you pull back the curtains and you say, here we are. Look at me. Criticize me. Go beyond me and whatever. But basically, fundamentally, I'm on a trajectory. Why don't you come on the same trajectory? And if you cannot do that, you cannot lead. So those of you who are teaching in Sunday school class, you're not just showing up on Sunday morning and communicating a little lesson from the Bible, a few devotional words from a guy who basically is saying, well, I, you know, I can't do this either. Don't worry about it. No, you come into that class fired up because you believe what you're talking about, and with everything within you, you're seeking to put that into practice, and you're in a repentant mode. There's all the difference in the world, isn't there? We've we've all been in Sunday school, we know. There's a big difference between a teacher who comes not incorporating or incarnating what he's talking about, and one of them that's really passionately concerned about what he's saying. So the first thing is you've got to set the example. I've told, told you all before about my successor, at Lookout Mountain, Dr. Lord, uh, George Long. And he used to, I used to have him preach on the anniversary of his retirement every year. And one year uh, when he was preaching, uh, one of our young deacons came out and said to me, Sandy, George may not be the best preacher in the whole world. He didn't say you're not either, but he could have. Uh, he said, George Long is not the best preacher in the whole world, but I always love to hear what George has to say because George said it. I knew exactly what he meant. That's the way I felt too about George. He led with his life. He led with his example. And you know what? If you take the men in your life that you value most as mentors, come on, isn't that part of why you value them as a mentor? Because you see their life and you want to emulate it. Gentlemen, that's all I'm saying. If you're on anybody's list at the end of the day as someone they would like to have as a mentor, it's because they see something in your life they want to emulate and they want to know how to get there from here. It's just as simple. You and I know it. Let's start there. Secondly, a leader must love his followers. Martin Luther King said, you can only change those you love. And the reason I find him to be so helpful in addressing the issues of our own day with respect to race, racial justice, is because he invited both white and black. He invited the oppressed and the oppressor from his perspective into one movement and he offered love and acceptance to both of them equally. At least at his best he did. That was his intention. That's what he taught. And I believe he demonstrated it. And so often I find in people who are seeking to lead today, they're using class and using race and using gender to divide off the majority from minorities so that they can get elected. It's so tempting. I understand it. People use religion. In politics, the same way. I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. I'm this denomination or that denomination. All they're trying to do is gather the votes in that area. And what they end up doing is undermining their leadership. Because you're called to lead everybody in your business, not just the Christians. So why should you call yourself a a leader for Christians? You're a leader for people. Of course, it's in the name of Christ. Christ. But we don't divide on religion or gender or race or economic opportunity. And yet I find people so tempted to do that because they can get a following and they can get something done they want for their own benefit. In every case, it's always for their selfish benefit. When you're laying your life down for people, you promote an inclusive message because that's exactly what Jesus did. And one could argue that he got killed over race relations because the Jews did not appreciate the fact that he was including the Gentiles and was not angry at the Romans like they were. And one could really argue that's how he got killed. He refused to cater to people's partisan politics that would enable him to accomplish some temporary objective and put him in a palace somewhere. And the leader is one who loves followers, and the followers are everybody. We don't go dividing them off. And engaging in party spirit. That's the reason that in a political season, gentlemen, I believe in politics and I believe in getting involved. And I especially believe in followers of Christ getting involved. But when you start lining up over your party. Be very careful. The Republican Party is not a Christian party and the Democratic Party is not a Christian party. Neither one of them are. They're both political parties. And Christians ought to be critical of their own party first. And yet I find people having rallies in churches to criticize an opposing party. And I just think, have they forgotten their mission? Have they forgotten what leadership is? To love all your followers and your potential followers? What has happened to the church that they've lost their message that they think now their message is a political message? They've forgotten what their message is. So I would just say be very careful that you love your followers. And when you love your followers who disagree with you, you would be first of all self-critical. It seems to me that in most white suburban churches that are dominantly Republican, you'd expect them to be very critical of the Republican Party. It seems to me that in urban churches black and white, that seem to be dominantly democratic, you'd expect them to be particularly critical of the Democratic Party or those policies. And just the opposite is happening. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of courage. It's a lack of leadership. Jesus critiqued his own regime. Thirdly, communicate the vision. How did Paul... Or rather, how did Moses lead the people out of Egypt? He talked to them about a land of milk and honey. Now, they didn't believe him. They had to send the spies over there. And when they sent the spies, you remember, they came back and only a couple of them said, we can do it. The milk and honey was there. They proved that. But also the Nephilim and <laughs> the giants. <laughs> oh, there's milk and honey, but you can't believe what you've got to go through to get it. Ooh, man, we're going to get slaughtered. There was only a couple of men who believed that God was big enough to slaughter those giants so that they could have milk and honey. A leader's got to go through a whole lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, Moses, because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, had to stay in the wilderness with them for 40 years because they didn't believe God could beat the giants. There are people out there, almost everybody, who doesn't believe the giants could be slain. What does the leader do? He has a vision which transcends the problems. And has a vision that's rooted in the character of God and His Word. And we lead on the basis of His Word. Sometimes you'll, you'll sound like a dreamer, an hopelessly, impossibly hopeless dreamer uh, who is impractical. But one reason you'll sound like that is because you are hopelessly impractical. But the other reason is that you have a dream that comes from the Scriptures. And we all know how powerful a dream is. Every follower of Jesus must be pulled out of his shell by a dream. Every follower of Jesus has a dream. And we cultivate that dream and we communicate it, contextualize where we're serving in the present moment. So if we have a dream for how this world is supposed to be, I know it's ideal. I know we're not going to get there until Jesus comes back, but I'm going to keep that dream. And if our dream is that we're going to have absolute racial justice in our workplace, that we're going to have gender justice, that we're going to treat everybody fairly, that we're not going to stab people in the back, and that we're not going to backbite, that's a dream. Hopelessly ideal. But it's built upon a dream that that Jesus gave me. So we'll just keep working on it, beginning with me. The leader has a dream, and he communicates it. So vision is extremely important for leadership. Thirdly, uh, Fourthly, we must manage the process. All leaders have process that has to be managed. And sometimes we, it breaks down at this very point. We're setting a good example. We love the followers. We have a vision. We just have no idea how to get there. So let me suggest that in your leadership, wherever you are, you pay attention to the process. Uh, my friend Bob Beal, who's a uh, business consultant, says that there are three things that make a leader. First of all, the leader knows why we're doing what we're doing. Secondly, he says, the leader knows the first step, the next step. And thirdly, the leader marshals the resources. Now, you think about it. If you're in a meeting, someone walks in the room, and he knows why we're doing what we're doing, what the next step is, and he can pull the resources together, he is the leader. So if you want to be an effective leader, I suggest you think about those three things. The why which has to do with vision and values and mission and motive, that you, that you know what the next step is, and you know how to, to, to parse what's going on and to delegate what needs to be done and to put in the feedback loops and so on, and you know how to marshal the resources for it, and you take responsibility for marshaling the resources for it. So that's all leading. Now, we've seen that we must shepherd, but we must shepherd God's flock. And I want us to notice two things here. They are not yours, and secondly, they are His. You don't have a right to browbeat people, to manipulate people, to mistreat people. They're not yours. You didn't make them. He made them. And if they're in the church, He not only made them, He redeemed them and put His life down on the cross for them. So you better be very careful with them. And I have to admit, I stand corrected every day of my life. I don't treat God's people the way Jesus treated them. I'd like to. I'm working on it. But I don't. So I stand here as a not a perfect man. I stand here hopefully as a repentant man. One who will hopefully continue to repent. How about you? We know that we haven't treated God's creatures as though He made them. We think that we have rights over them when we're in leadership. And when we're in the church, somehow maybe we think somebody else redeemed them or we redeemed them. But the Lord redeemed them. They belong to Him. He, he bought them back. So treat them as His property. Thirdly, shepherd God's flock under your care. He has given you a flock and you must shepherd them. So everybody here has some one or group of people under your care. Just think about it. Everybody here has a group of people that you should be caring for. And someone who's following Christ is looking for more people in more ways to take care of. You're not looking for retirement from this job. Unless you want to stop following Jesus. You can retire from your gainful means of employment. That's great. Fine. You cannot retire from gathering, feeding, guarding, and leading people. This is your life calling because you're following Christ. And the grace of God is not going to be suffused in our community, the nation of the world, without men like you. Staying at it all your life at the risk of your life. So he gives you a flock, shepherd them. Then thirdly, God's shepherds must have godly attitudes. And just very quickly, all we can do is mention them. We must be willing. We must be eager. We must be exemplary. You see all those in verse two and three. You're not forced into this from the outside. You're forced into it from the inside. You're compelled because you're in love with Jesus Christ, because He's shepherding you. You're saying, Lord, you've shepherded me. I want to shepherd somebody else. I want to do for somebody what you've done for me, to the best of my ability. You're motivated on the inside, not the outside. You're not manipulated. You're not image management managing. You're doing it out of a heart of eagerness, and that's the only way you can be fruitful in this business of leadership. And you're not doing it for money. Not even in your business. You say, that's strange. What do you mean, not even my business? No, I mean I'm not saying you don't want to pay your bills. I'm not saying you don't set up your retirement accounts. All I'm saying is your fundamental purpose in business is to shepherd people. And until that thought really sinks down into your heart, I don't think you understand how to run your business the way Jesus wants you to. This is life transforming, gentlemen, life transforming. That the purpose of doing what you do in this community is because you are seeking to lead according to the grace of God to gather people to Christ, to feed them, to guard them, and to lead them. And you're doing it through your business and through the other means of engagement. Lastly, godly leaders will receive God's reward. When are you going to receive it? Well, when He comes back. There are rewards along the way. I have to tell you, I love what I do. I mean, my whole, you're, you know, some of you are paying me to be a shepherd. That's wonderful. It's dangerous also, but it's wonderful. I love it. There are pleasures every week. You're saying, you're lying to me. No, I'm not. Now, it wouldn't be pleasurable for some of you, <laughs> but it's pleasurable for me. That's how perverted I am, I guess. I don't know. I like being a pastor. But those are not my rewards. My reward is going to come to me and to you when he comes back. What will it be? It will be a crown of glory. It won't be these leaves that you get from being an Olympic champion in the first century. It won't be people cheering you on. No, it will be a crown of glory. And how long is it going to last? Forever. There was a missionary who came back from Africa who was a shepherd, a missionary, an evangelist, who had led people to Christ and planted churches and been away from home a long time. This is in the early part of the 20th century. He was coming back home into the harbor of New York. And he noticed there was a big band there on the dock waiting for the ship to arrive. And there were crowds and throngs of people. And after he got, uh, as he was getting off the ship, he understood what was going on because he was held back while the real party that was being celebrated got off the ship. And that was President Teddy Roosevelt returning from one of his safaris in Africa. And the crowd went wild and here's, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and all the rest. The missionary went back to his little apartment in New York that was set up for him. He thought, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, give this grand welcome. And I've been in Africa for years, slaving, living in poverty, leading people to Jesus. And I come home and there's nothing there for me. No one's there to wait for me. And he had this little voice that came to his heart and said, the reason is, you're not home yet. Gentlemen, don't forget it. When you get home, anything that this world can do to imitate the grand homecoming you're going to have is puny by comparison with what God has stored up for you who follow him and in following him, have others follow them so that they will follow him too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the leadership of your son and for the mighty example he has set for us and for the mighty accomplishment on the cross, dying for our sins and being raised to life that we too might be alive to walk in the steps of Jesus. Please, Lord, help us in this day to lead as we ought, that others may come to know You. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.